Yeah, because I think the idea with perfectionism is like it's sort of the the underlying process almost where it can show up in so many different ways. Like the person who procrastinates and never gets anything done, that could be perfectionism or the person who's like a hyper overachiever. And it's like, how do they get everything done? That person could also be struggling with perfectionism and you could show up as like social anxiety or depression. So the, the form varies a lot. Hi, this is Danae. I'm the founder of Simple Families. Simple Families is an online community for parents who are seeking a simpler, more intentional life. In this show, we focus on minimalism with kids, positive parenting, family wellness, and decreasing the mental load. My perspectives are based in my firsthand experience raising kids, but also rooted in my PhD in child development. So you're going to hear conversations that are based in research, but more importantly, real life. Thanks for joining us. Hi there. Thanks so much for tuning in. Today, we're talking all about perfectionism. My guest today and the voice you heard in the intro is Clarissa Ong. Clarissa is a professor at the University of Toledo. She's a psychologist and a researcher who specializes in perfectionism. Clarissa and her co-author, Michael Tuhig, wrote the book entitled The Anxious Perfectionist, How to Manage Perfectionism-Driven Anxiety Using Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. Perfectionism is a topic that comes up all the time in my work with kids and in my work with parents. As most of us know, the two are very much intertwined. So I had a lot of questions for Clarissa on this topic. In this episode, we are going to dive deeper into understanding perfectionism. Sometimes perfectionism can be adaptive, and sometimes it can be maladaptive. Clarissa and I discuss the need to emphasize process over product or outcome. So trying to emphasize less how great the cookies come out, and more about the enjoyment of baking them. Now that's easier said than done, especially when we live in a society that is very oriented towards outcome. But I think there's a balance to strike Perfectionism isn't something that's limited to adults. Many children start to show signs of this from an early age. And there are absolutely things that we can do to help support them. If you are an adult with perfectionist tendencies, or you are partnered with someone who has perfectionist tendencies, or you are parenting a child with perfectionist tendencies, I think you'll find this episode useful. Before I get into my chat with Clarissa, here's a one-minute word from our sponsor, PrepDish. PrepDish is a meal planning service. I've been using it for many years, and I can say that it just keeps getting easier. PrepDish sends a PDF each week. PDF to do my grocery shopping. Step one, to implement prep day. Step two, and finally dish day, step three. I order my groceries online, so using the grocery list to stick everything in my cart is very straightforward and quick. I prefer to use the super fast menus from PrepDish, And often I find I can do the week's prep in about 30 minutes, especially when I enlist the help of a partner or other supporter in my life. And from there, that brings us to dish day, getting the meals on the table, which is so seamless and straightforward. Prep dish has reduced my mental load so much when it comes to meal planning. If you want to try it out, go to prepdish.com forward slash families to get two weeks free. That's prepdish.com forward slash families. Without further ado, here's my chat with Clarissa. Hi, Clarissa. How are you? Good. Good. I'm glad to have you here today and to learn a little bit more about perfectionism. 
Great. Yeah, I hope I can be helpful. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your professional interests in your career and how perfectionism fits into that. Um, so I started doing research on hoarding disorder in college. So it's, I think people are familiar through like reality TV, you know, people gather a lot of things. Um, and it used to be considered part of OCD, which was also one of my interests. When I went to grad school, I was more interested in like OCD hoarding, but also like the spectrum of OCD and related presentations. And then perfectionism be like became very natural, like kind of extension of that. Uh, we were also more interested in looking at like kind of transdiagnostic presentations and treatments for them. So rather than thinking of like, oh, let's treat OCD, it's thinking about like, hey, what is sort of like the engine of the OCD and how do we treat that underlying piece? And so that's how perfectionism kind of became more of an interest and then just kind of went from there. Yeah. I feel like there are so many different areas that we've covered on the podcast that are wound into this topic of perfectionism and, and your book. Um, it's very, it infiltrates into many different um, mental health challenges. Yeah. Cause I think the idea with perfectionism is like, it's sort of the, the underlying process almost where it can show up in so many different ways. Like the person who procrastinates and never gets anything done, that could be perfectionism or the person who's like a hyper overachiever. And it's like, how do they get everything done? That person could also be struggling with perfectionism and you could show up as like social anxiety or depression. So the, the form varies a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And so that actually, those two different presentations um, are, are of interest to me. I was, you know, when I've historically thought about perfectionism, I think what comes to mind is like um, stereotypical Barbie from the Barbie movie um, mm -hmm. or Isabella from Encanto, that presentation where it's sort of this physical representation of perfection and also um, high achieving, mm -hmm. but it's not always like that. Can you talk more about those, the different presentations? Yeah, I love that you said Encanto, actually, because to me, Encanto is a movie about perfectionism. Like, mm. so I think all of the sisters struggle with some version of it, right? Like, Louise, is it Louisa, the really strong yeah. one? Yeah, she's like, everyone expects me to do everything. So I always have to perform and like, I can't say no to anything, right? She has a whole song about it. Isabella is like the obvious, like, I'm, you know, every, my life is great on the surface. And then, oh my gosh, what's the main character's Mirabelle. name? Mirabelle. Like she also is under, you know, the same pressure. She feels like she has to perform, but then she doesn't have that magical ability. And it explores like what happens when you have the same expectations or you feel like you should meet the same expectations, but, you know, you feel like you can't. And um, I really like that movie because I, I can kind of relate to elements of all three. Yeah. So, okay, so you asked about the two different kinds. So, yeah, I think we often think about like the Isabellas where it's, wow, like your life is perfect. You're always put together, like kind of, um, it isn't clear that people like that struggle with anxiety or just like, you know, difficult emotions or thoughts. And I think on the flip side, if we think about perfectionism as being about having these really high expectations that feel like if I don't meet them, that's it. Like I'm a terrible person and my life is like terrible. Um, so that anyone subject to that pressure can be kind of construed as like struggling with some version of perfectionism. So what happens when you're someone who might not have the ability to perform 
And I think that can be stressful in a different way because you don't even get the positive reinforcement of society. You know, so for example, Isabel's really stressed, but everyone's like, oh my gosh, you're great. And so she gets a bit of like social reinforcement, whereas the person who's struggling like Mirabel, it's kind of like, oh, you're fine. Like, just keep trying, you know? So I, I think, I don't know, does that kind of get at what you're asking? Yeah. Well, you know, the first thing that comes to mind is um, children who have dysgraphia or a writing mm-hmm. disorder, they often struggle to put pen to paper mm-hmm. at all. So, you know, even in the first letter when they're writing it, um, they distress, they are so distressed over, you know, getting, creating the letter in the correct way, putting the letters in such an order that they freeze and they can't even begin the writing process. Right. So that, that is a type of perfectionism, but not necessarily a high achieving type of perfectionism yeah yeah I think if the like underlying reason for that is oh it has to be perfect or it has to be totally correct if not it's not worth doing that like all or nothingness is very much I think related I struggle not struggle but I have that with some of my students where it's like oh I can't write a sentence because it has to be the best sentence so like I can't get around a paper and it's and I think it's sort of a bit reinforced by like the kind of um like guidance we get from authority figures right like as let's say like as an adult I'm like well obviously it's an A you know and and to me it's like it's an A or it's not an A whereas I think having the perspective of well there's A and then there's in between an A and then there's like closer to an A and being able to kind of recognize that there's stages of progress between like wrong and correct I think can be much more helpful yeah um, so, so much of what you just said, I have notes on the things that I wanted to ask you about today, <laughs> including yeah. great inflation. <laughs> That's what okay. that, um, is really interesting to me. Um, but okay, let's go back to Isabella. So there, I'm really interested in talking about Isabella's character. Um, I practice something called sand play therapy. Are you familiar with that at all? I have heard of it. I wouldn't say I know a lot about it, but I've definitely heard of it. Okay. So for anyone out there, I've talked about it a little bit on the podcast before, Um, but what it involves is I have hundreds of different figurines of different representations. Some are characters, some are people, some are animals, some are houses, just sort of a variety of different little figurines. And when I'm working with kids, I invite them to choose figurines that are meaningful to them and put them into the sandbox and sort of arrange them in some sort of order. So the prompt, usually the first time when I'm working with a kid is just take this little bin and fill it up with anything that calls to you, anything that looks interesting to you. And I will tell you that at least 80 to 90% of the little girls that I work with between the ages of eight and 12 end up choosing Isabella and using her to represent themselves in the sandbox of hundreds of things they choose Isabella. And it's this character that they keep gravitating towards over and over again. And I feel like this sort of theme of, you know, needing to present perfectly, but being deeply conflicted inside is becoming more and more common Mm -hmm. um, for little girls growing up. I don't know if you've, you know, I've been reading a lot. Have you seen in the news about um, how on TikTok, young, young girls, like seven, eight years old are being, um, are wanting products from Sephora, like wrinkle products from Sephora. Have you heard anything about this? No, I haven't. Oh, wow. It's yeah. So it feels like this, um, this piece of the culture is kind of dripping down into earlier and early, earlier ages. Yeah, I can, I can see that because I'm, I'm not a huge social media user, but I know there's filters 
on there. And I imagine if younger people are using social media, where the filter is like, oh, how you are right now is not worth putting online. You need something in between. It's sort of an implicit message. So I could see that happening. And yeah. Yeah. The filters are terrifying. Okay. <laughs> don't you think, I don't know. Have you tried the filters? No, I haven't. No, don't do it. Don't I, do it. I, I imagine if I used it, I would not like my face filter or something. Yeah. Well, you know, it's as soon as you see the fil a filter, like a beauty filter on your face, it's hard to, you, you go, I mean, I know I went from feeling like I look fine and then I put the filter on and then I took the filter off and like, whoa, I don't look fine anymore. It's that immediate sort of change of perspective that yeah. happens from just like two seconds of viewing another possibility. And I think that being so available to us as we grow is, I think there's, it's going to be a, that's another book for you there, Clarissa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the, the, um, the access or the vulnerability that social media sort of provides, like you just putting yourself out there and anyone can comment pretty much, which is that part of the reason why I'm not really on social media yeah. too much. Yeah. Yeah. I am wondering about the parent-child connection to perfectionist tendencies. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like this is more nature or nurture? I think it like is probably a mix and it probably like kind of, you know, some people is more nature, some people it's more nurture. Um, but I think since we've been talking about Encanto and because I've been thinking about that piece too, like, you know, how the, the grandma is the matriarch and she like has these kind of, I don't know. I It's been a while since I've watched this. I can't remember how explicit or implicit they were, but she has these expectations for her kids and her grandkids. And I think, you know, um, like when I think about the three sisters and their kind of brand of perfectionism, the link between that and like the grandma is like pretty clear. And, you know, at the end, she's like, well, that's not really what I cared about. You know, I thought that's how, you know, I care about her reasoning was. And I think that is a pretty relatable theme that, whether my parents say it or not, I feel like they have high expectations for me and I've internalized that in some way. I think there's so many elements to it. There's this piece of, I don't know if I've ever read a specific study about it, but the idea that kids inherently desire their parents' approval or their caregiver's approval feels pretty like relatively universal. And so if it feels like a caregiver is saying, hey, this is what I want, it makes a lot of sense that we would do anything we can to try and get that approval or the, the validation I think that's part of it. I think there's the modeling these standards. So if parents are high achieving, it's like, oh, that's normal. That's how I should be, you know. And I think kids are pretty good at picking up things that are not said. And so even parents say it's okay, but then every time they get an A, the parents are like, let's go celebrate. And when they get a B, the parents are like, oh, that's good job, good job. You know, like I think kids can pick up on that. Mm -hmm. So I think there's so many ways that parents can sort of influence perfectionistic tendencies. Yeah. Yeah. When well, you're thinking about um, Isabella's mom and Mirabel and Luisa's mom, mm -hmm. Julieta, she's wonderful, right? I mean, like she's like the dream mom. She's mm -hmm. nurturing, like she heals you with an arepa. Like it's just, yes. I feel like that's like the dream figure, maternal figure, warm and comforting. And um, yeah. And so, but still, I mean, even Julieta has, has kids that have these um, tendencies. It feels like it is inescapable um, in some ways. Yeah. And I, it seemed to me like, 
at least because Maribel's the protagonist, like she was responding so much more to her grandma's mm-hmm. expectations. And it's interesting because if I remember correctly, at the end, it's the dad is revealed to not have any powers and how he struggles with it. And like Maribel like didn't connect with that. And initially it connected with that as much as like, well, but everyone else has powers. Like that's who I want to be like. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't make that connection either, but that is, that's really nice to think about now. Yeah. 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 So, you know, you mentioned grades a little bit, and I've noticed this increasing tendency over the past few years of um, what seems like grade inflation. I don't know. Some people might argue with that. Um, I read an article about our local public school a year or so ago that said that 50% of the high school was on the high honor roll, and it was celebrating that. And that, to me, felt like a a signal of a problem. If 50% of the students are the highest achieving students, then do we really even, are we, are we really even ranking anything? Are we just saying everyone is high achieving and everyone is getting A's? And a lot of kids are getting all A's and not just A's, but I'm seeing more and more kids who are striving to get an A plus. So 97, 98, 99%, or they feel not good enough. Have you seen Mm -hmm. that on the college level? Um, not as much. I think because I mostly work with grad students where grades, well, maybe it's a similar thing, but at least in the grad school programs I've been a part of, you pretty much will get an A. Like it's not uh like it's more about I feel like the focus is more on learning and like skill acquisition, less on grades relative to college. Um, but I think that idea. So I I'd be curious what like the 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 reason for the 50% is, is it that kids are that much high achieving or is it like more grade inflation where it's like, well, we want everyone to be able to feel good. But then the phenomenon of, well, if everyone's getting an A and A is really average and I need to be better than average, I is deeply like relatable to me. <laughs> There's so much of perfectionism that's about comparison. It's not about, like on some level it's about being good, but on another level it's about being better. Right. And so I think great inflation, um, like if the intention is that we want everyone to feel like they're achieving, you know, in the Incredibles where he's the, in the first one, the villain's like, oh, everyone has superpowers and no one's a superhero. I, I think it has that kind of feeling where it's like if everyone's getting A's and A's worthless to me and I need to be better. Right. Yeah. And then an A is not good enough. An A plus is good enough. Right. Yeah. And then if everyone starts getting A pluses, then that's not good enough either. Cause you can't be the best if everyone's the best. Right. Well, then it brings up the whole question of whether grades are really worth anything. Like you said, in grad school, everybody gets an A. It's not really about the grade. It's about just learning the material and growing, mm-hmm. but grades still seem pretty important, at least like on the high school and middle school level. For sure. And probably college too. So it's it, that messaging I think is really confusing when kids are getting like averaging like 98% in, in all of their classes. And I've seen that with many, many kids in my therapy practice who um, aren't necessarily super, super high achieving kids. Even I think kids who are more mm-hmm. in the average range are getting a, all A's and a significant number of A pluses um, and feeling like if they don't get that, those grades, then they are falling short. Okay. So what is the... I guess maybe because I don't work with kids as much, what is the concern? Is it like, it feels like they're constantly being pushed up and up. So it becomes like, oh, I need to get a B to feel good. It's, oh, I need to get an A++ to feel good. Right. Yes. Uh, And sort of feeling like 
if they don't have all A pluses, then they're not doing well enough. And um, a lot of times these kids are doing massive amounts of extra credit in order to get the A pluses. Mm -hmm. So it's not even really based on their regular classroom grades. It's a matter of like, if they don't get an A in all of their tests and all of their exams, then they do a lot of extra credit to sort of make up and to bring their grades up. Um, okay. But I don't, I guess I don't know if that's such a bad thing. They're doing extra work in order to improve their, if it's valuable work and it's adding to their yeah. knowledge, maybe it's not a bad thing. Yeah, I guess that's the, like something that we talk about with, or I think about with perfectionism, it's about like the motivation rather than what you're doing. So if someone's like, you know, like volunteering and, you know, like participating in sports and, you know, you're playing in the band and like all of that's like super motivating and like, this is what you want to do. You're super interested, you know, you have that curiosity that's a different picture from someone who's doing all those things and everything's about if I don't do this, I'm a loser. Or like, if I don't do this, my parents are going to be so mad at me. Or if I don't do this, like, oh, my friends are going to think I'm like stupid, you know, like, so it could look exactly the same. But if the motivation is something that's a bit more intrinsically meaningful, it, it feels like a different scenario, I guess, more than the doing. We're going to pause for a two minute word from today's sponsors. The first sponsor for today is Paired. Paired is a relationship app for couples. You and your partner download the app, Pair Together, and every day Paired gives you questions, quizzes, and games to have fun, stay connected, and deepen your conversations. What I love about it is it often prompts us to think about things in a new way or to try new things. Recently, a question came up that was, what's one new activity that you could try together this month? And we decided on an adult ninja course which is something entirely outside of my comfort zone for what it's worth. It's simple and often hilarious. Each day you get a quiz to play or a question to answer, and you can't see your partner's answer until you answer yourself. So whether you're just a few dates in or you've been together a long time, it's time to lighten the mood and have fun with your partner using Paired. Head to paired.com forward slash simple to get a seven day free trial and 25% off if you sign up for a subscription head to paired.com forward slash simple. That's P-A-I-R-E-D.com slash simple to sign up today. Connect with your partner every day using Paired. A happier relationship starts here. Our next and final sponsor for today is Masterclass. I recently signed a contract to write a new book, which I am very excited about. And I have been leaning heavily on Masterclass to brush up on my writing skills. Masterclass offers a variety of topics, but I'm especially enjoying Roxanne Gay's course on teaching writing for social change. You can find courses on pretty much anything in Masterclass. So if you picture that thing that you've always wanted to learn, picture learning it from the person who's literally the best in the world. That's what you're going to get. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors. So whether you want to master negotiation with Chris Voss or think like a boss like Martha Stewart, with Masterclass, you'll have the opportunity to learn things you've always wanted to learn and discover some new topics that interest you as well. Right now, our listeners are going to get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com families. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com families. Masterclass.com families. Thanks for tuning in and supporting our sponsors. Back to my chat with Clarissa. 
you talk a lot in your book about process over product mm -hmm. and that the importance of that. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I think, um, I think we live in a very outcomes oriented society. So like you're saying with grades, right? Like at the end of the school year, I don't know how many kids reflect on like, wow, you know, I learned all these things and I feel like, you know, I've been able to, uh, you know, at the beginning of the year, I didn't know about this thing. And now I know all about like mammals. And I would guess, at least this is what I did when I was a kid. It's like, oh my gosh, yes, I got all A's. Or like, oh, I only got one B, something like that. And that's very outcome oriented, right? I'm not thinking about how I got there. I'm just thinking about what, what it is that I got. And I think the reason we talk about process over product is there's a lot of times you can't really control the product or the outcome. In fact, the outcome is dependent on so many other variables. Like, is my teacher really strict this year? Are they doing great inflation this year? Did I Do I have time to do extracurriculars? Maybe I live, you know, in a family where I have to take care of my siblings and I don't have the time, you know, I don't have the, the bandwidth to do all those things. Um, whereas the process, which is more about how you do it, how you approach a task is so much more within our control. Like I can do this, you know, with conscientiousness, or I can do this with a playful, you know, quality, or I can do this in a way that is considerate to my friends. And, and, you know, our friends may still not like us, even if we're kind, you know, like we may not have like that perfect Instagram social media experience, even if we like prepare, but we can control that we prepare, we can control how we treat other people. And so I think emphasizing process is a more useful way to judge the quality of our life because we can actually control it. Like the analogy I think of is it's like saying, um, so if we talk about grades, let's say, you know, my teacher like plays a game and every time she like rolls the dice and whatever the dice is, that's my grade. Right. And it's and if we base our sort of worth on that grade, like what does it, that's sort of what it feels like sometimes. And it's so arbitrary, like we just can't control it. And if we base the quality of life on that, we're basically saying how good our life is, is out of our control, which feels like a very difficult position to be in. Yeah. I think a lot about baking when I think about process over product <laughs> because it's something that's sort of equal in, in weight, right? You want your final product to be really good, but you also should enjoy the process of it. I have this memory when I was a kid of um, baking with a friend and we, well, first of all, I, I think in general, kids are sometimes discouraged from baking. I was definitely discouraged from baking because I always made a big mess. Yeah. And uh, my friend and I that day were given permission from her parents to bake in her kitchen. Um, we made a moderately sized big mess. Um, but the, um, what stands out to me was when we were baking, we were having a great time baking. We were probably like, I don't know, 11 or 12 years old her mom came in and took a look at our dough. We were baking cookies and said, oh, you don't have enough flour. You don't have enough this. And she um, like came in and sort of like swooped in and added all of these things into our cookies, basically mm -hmm. telling us they weren't good enough. Um, and then finished, like kind of finished it off for us and like put them mm -hmm. into the oven. And um, it's funny that I, in that memory, that's what stands out to me, right? Is that we were mm -hmm. sort of, we were doing this very imperfect thing and we were having fun doing it. The product might not have been that good, um, mm -hmm. but someone else kind of came in and sort of took the joy out of the process yeah. for us. So we didn't necessarily get to enjoy that. Um, and that's something I think with my kids that I 
try to focus on, but it's hard, yeah. right? Especially as a parent, when you know, right, if you walk in and you see the dough is missing a very important ingredient like flour, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know that the mm-hmm. product is going to be bad. So it's so hard to not swoop in and fix things in or in order to help, quote unquote. Yeah, no, I totally see that because, you know, if we step back, it's like we do live in a society where product is valued, like, you know, like tangible output or whatever, like, okay, you know, like all those metrics. And I think we could like be very process focused with kids and be like, hey, what matters is you're learning, are you having fun? And then I imagine like, and then we send them out to the world and there's bosses and supervisors are like, no, that's not good enough. And, you know, and they just like, <laughs> I could imagine that actually probably wouldn't prepare them really well for the world right. that we live in. So I, I, I can appreciate that like balance because you kind of want them to enjoy the like childhood and like the wonderment of being wrong and figuring stuff out. But then the the like instinct to like protect them from like, I don't want people to make fun of you or criticize you. I can imagine that's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, it, while I was reading your book, I was also in the midst of planning, putting kind of like the finishing planning on our trip for spring break. Um, and so for spring break, we are taking our kids on a hundred kilometer bike trip and we've oh, never man. done anything. Well, might, might be fun. We're not sure yet. Get <laughs> in a month. Um, so we, so we've never done anything like this before. Um, last year we went on a cruise, so it was something like very easy and, um, you know, just kind of relaxing, yeah. sort of relaxing, I guess that's arguable too. Um, but this is going to be quite an undertaking in the sense that um, it's physically exhausting. Mm-hmm. So I think that um, the way that I'm coping with my worry around the trip not going well, and when I say not going well, that means my kid's complaining a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, the way I'm coping with that is trying to plan every single element of it to prevent all of the challenges that may arise. Would you call that perfectionist tendencies? (laughs) (laughs) I think if, if you're doing it in a way that's in response to high expectations and you're experiencing a lot of distress related to feeling like you can't meet those expectations or trying very hard to meet those expectations, it feels like, you know, that's sort of the pattern, but I think it's so instinctive and I think it's very adaptive in I wouldn't say this universally true, but I definitely think there's a lot about the society that reinforces perfectionism. Like, I think that's true. I work in a university and I think that's totally true. I don't think my boss wants me to like, you know, just have fun. I think they're like, no, I want a very good product at the end of everything. So I think it's a very adaptive tendency. Yeah. You talk a little bit about adaptive perfectionism versus maladaptive perfectionism. Can you distinguish between those two? Yeah. So there's a maybe a better way to frame it for me. Like, I think that is what we wrote. But I think a better way to frame it is like thinking about perfectionism when it's helpful in a specific context and when it's not. So, for example, I said, like, you know, if I um, have a project that's very, very high stakes and um, it's something that maybe I don't know that much about it might actually be beneficial for me to be somewhat perfectionistic about it, to like read up on what I need to know, to be really prepared because like it's very high stakes. So to me, that would be adaptive perfectionism. Like there's something in there where, you know, my job is important to me and being very rigid will actually serve me well and is going to like make me like my life more. And then maladaptive perfectionism is when you're using perfectionism in a context where it's not working. So for example, 
So maybe like with your trip example, like planning beforehand might actually be adaptive, right? Because there are just so many variables and having some level of preparation will probably be helpful. Like what if it rains, you know, and if you're not prepared, you're like, oh, well, okay, I guess I didn't prepare for this. But then I wonder if maybe like, and this is just an example, maybe during the trip, right? If you continue to be perfectionistic and you're like, okay, like everyone, like this is the schedule we have to leave now. This is what we say we'll eat. We'll stop at this, you know, lunch stop or whatever. And then that might be less helpful because it's sort of like keeping you from being present with your kids. And I imagine part of your goal of your trip is for your family to create this memory and for everyone to like, you know, be present and enjoy each other's company. And so even for the same event of like the trip, like there are different aspects where it's more helpful to be perfectionistic versus not. So that's sort of how I think of adaptive versus maladaptive is are you matching your behavior to what is demanded of the context or like the needs of the situation? Mm, okay. That, that's helpful. I think I understand it a little bit more clearly now. Um, thinking about how I'm trying to control the pieces to help it go well, but at the same time, knowing when to let go and uh, be flexible when, when it's called for. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's that flexibility piece, like, cause being rigid sometimes is very helpful until it's not basically. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, in, in this situation, I feel like I am rigid in the expectation that we're going to finish the biking each day. It's four days and we're going to finish each day all the way, um, because we're perfectly capable of it. Um, mm -hmm. it might be a little bit uncomfortable and being able to sit with that discomfort. Um, my kids are very privileged and have a lot of comforts in life. And I think that getting uncomfortable is something that they need to practice. And sometimes mm -hmm. we have to force these opportunities um, yeah. for them to practice it. Yeah. So, um, I mean, but at the core of it, like it's even more uncomfortable for me to watch them be uncomfortable. <laughs> I'm yeah. the one that experiences the most discomfort, I think in of all, perhaps, um, at least in my mind when my kids are forced out of their comfort zone. But um, so in pre I prepare for that, right? I'm kind of mentally imagining that and visualizing mm -hmm. helps me a lot. Um, mm -hmm. Visualizing, yeah. you know, how it might go well, might not go so well, and knowing that there's multiple possibilities that could come out of it. Yeah, and I think what you're describing of, you know, wanting to expose, I guess, everyone to some discomfort and learning how to manage it. To me, that's such a process goal. Like it's, that's so much about like the, the being, right. The like dealing with discomfort. Um, and I think that's something you have control over. Like when discomfort comes up, what am I going to do with it? You can control that, but you can't control, like, I'm not going to get a flat tire, for example. Right. But you can control like, okay, if that comes up and I'm stressed, like I'm going to deal with it in like, you know, a whatever way. So, yeah, I think that's, that's a really nice example of yeah. like, the process of one of the quotes I wrote down from your book, um, you talked about being open to discomfort and sitting with stress and anxious feelings. And um, you said this goes against our biology by refraining from reacting to signals of danger. And if we lived in prehistoric times, the hippies who make peace with their thoughts and emotions would be the first to be eaten. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us more about that. I, I love that. Oh, yeah. I um, So if we think about the anxiety that comes with perfectionism, right? Anxiety, fear, they come from this part of our brain that's like, danger, danger. You need to like do whatever you can to avoid. Um, so in the context of like the savanna, right? There's some like whatever, saber tooth tiger. I'm not a huge like biologist.
biology person, but I, yeah, let's just say there's some scary animal. When you get anxiety, the most adaptive thing to do in that situation is to run. It's not to like, let me think, could that just be the wind rustling? Like, huh? Like, you know, like, oh, I'm noticing this feeling of my heart beating really fast. Like, how interesting. The, the adaptive thing to do is like, I, I can't think about it. I just need to run. And I like thinking about that in the context of modern day, where sometimes when these expectations don't get met, I experienced some of this, like, I get that feeling of fear and anxiety, where it feels almost like life or death, or maybe even literally life or death. Like that is kind of what anxiety is designed to do. It's designed to make you say, don't think about it, just go. And, um, and I think being able to empathize in that way that so for someone when expectations don't get met, that is what it feels like. Whereas from the outside, it's easy to say like, like, it's not a big deal. Like you didn't get an A, like it's okay. Or, but if we can empathize with this is how scary it feels for the person, the stakes feel that high. Um, I find it to be a really useful framing and it makes the behaviors make a lot of sense. Like, oh, like that's why you're doing everything you can to avoid this outcome. Whereas I think being able to observe our thoughts is super counterintuitive, like observing anxiety is so counterintuitive because all those people who didn't react to anxiety immediately just got eaten and their genes didn't get passed down. So that's, that's sort of like how I think about it a little bit, that it's that the responses are very understandable and they don't work in this context. Right. Yeah. And it's... Um... I think it it gives a lot of perspective for understanding what, even if you're not a person who struggles with anxiety, but if you have someone in your life that does how very real these fears can feel and how high the alarm bell is really ringing for them. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, I mean, we do so many fire drills. So I think by now we're like, not very um, scared of them, but if that weren't the case, right. It's like every time a fire alarm goes off and you're, and someone's asking you, like, just like notice the alarm and, you know, take a look around you. Like, is there smoke? Like, you know, but the the, the very instinctive thing is just like, oh my gosh, I don't want to get burned. I'm just going to run out. So it's, it's really difficult. Um, I think for people who don't experience anxiety to that extent, it can be hard to understand because it's like, oh, it's just in your head or like, oh, it's not a big deal. Therefore, your anxiety should go down. And it's like that fire alarm is still like blaring. And I say this as someone who experiences a lot of anxiety. I feel like I have a lot of empathy for the, the like reactive kind of tendency. Yeah. In your book, you talk a lot about mindfulness as a tool to help cope with perfectionism. Can you give some examples of how mindfulness helps to sort out your perfectionist tendencies? Yeah. So I think the anxiety is one example. I think, um, mindfulness is one of those very like broad constructs that can mean so many things these days so I'll like kind of define it as this like non-judgmental observing um being able to take a step back notice thoughts for what they are notice feelings for what they are um and so I think if we can do that we're sort of um we give so the way I think of it is like so there's the the stimulus or like the thought or feeling that's like I can't do this or I'm terrible or fear and then there's the action response, which is, okay, and I'm going to try to like watch Netflix or I'm going to like ask for reassurance or I'm going to stay up till 3 a.m. to do finish this project. And there's a gap between the um, the sort of the trigger and then the response. And I think of mindfulness as a way of extending the gap between those two things. So you have, it's almost like if you can 
you know, in movies where there's this like slow-mo frame and they're going through like all these, like, how do I want to respond? But on the outside, it's like a second. So I think of mindfulness as extending that, that gap. So what I think is helpful is it gives you the chance to say, how do I want to respond to this trigger? And what is going to be helpful for me to do, right? So it's like the, the fear goes off or the thought, like, I'm not good enough goes off. And you have your, you have the distance and the space to say like, huh, I wonder what listening this thought is going to, to this thought is going to do, or huh, I wonder where that's coming from and approach it with curiosity, as opposed to like, you're right, I'm terrible. And I'm just going to go, you know, eat junk food because it's going to make me feel better. Yeah. I um, recently gave a keynote address for about, I don't know, it was like 200 or 250 people. And at the beginning of it, I wasn't close enough to the mic. So I was leading with a joke and which I guess, I don't know if maybe that's the mistake. So I was leading with a joke mm-hmm. and because I wasn't close enough to the mic, no one heard my joke and no one laughed because no one could hear what I was saying. Um, and then someone told me I needed to lean in because the microphone wasn't picking. I was not very far away, but the microphone wasn't picking me up. So I leaned in and they could start, to, they could hear me. But because that first joke fell flat immediately in my mind, I just went to, they're not going to laugh. They're not going to like this. This is going to go terrible. And, um, it completely changed the rest of my presentation and now thinking about how mindfulness would have helped there. It would have been, if I would have taken that time to pause and think, it's not that they don't like you, they couldn't hear you, (laughs) but I didn't. And I think there just kind of spiraled and impacted the the rest of the presentation. Mm, Yeah. Cause people also talk about mindfulness as sort of like being present. And it sounds like in that case, your mind kind of got like stuck on that moment and throughout the entire presentation it sounds like there's a bit where I got hooked there and then I think the mindfulness of like I'm just living in each moment as it's coming like yeah but I I would have done the same thing so <laughs> like I would have done it differently right and I think when you're when your mind I guess in a, in a situation like that you're probably carried kind of already in a high arousal mode since there's a lot of pressure. So you're probably more likely to kind of jump into that, um, that mode. I don't know. What do you think? Oh yeah, totally. So I also have this like, um, uh, what is it like a self-reinforcing cycle where I get nervous and then like my speech is kind of shaky and then I get more nervous because I'm like, oh my gosh, everyone can tell I'm so anxious. And then my speech gets shakier and and I really have to be very intentional about breaking that cycle, but that's my default. <laughs> right. So yes, I agree. Have you been able to break it? I guess you would have to ask people who've listened to me do public speaking. But from my perspective, I think it takes me a few minutes. And like what I do is I try to like take my own advice. I guess I try to focus on the process. Like, why am I doing this? And it's like, cause I want to share like my research with people and I want people to see like, you know, how cool this work is maybe. Um, and so if I can really shift very intentionally, like stick to like, why am I here? And what what's the point of me doing this? That helps. But when I'm stuck on like, oh my gosh, did they hear how I like, how, like I said, that word weird, then it kind of, it uh, I go into that spiral. Yeah. And I feel like that's a perfect example of where, you know, most people would be outcome focused in the sense where the outcome would be all the people thinking you did a good job, 
right? And like maybe coming up to you afterwards and giving you a pat on the back and congratulating you and telling you how well you did. But using that process-oriented approach where you're thinking, why am I here? What am I here to share? What is my goal? Um, I love that. I'm going to use that because I think that could be really helpful. Oh, good. Yeah, I, I think it also, like for me, it takes away the expectation that I need to impress people. So I, because I do care about that. I do care that people, you know, think that I did a good job. And like, so it's there in the background and I just can't focus on it. And if I don't expect that, that anything, um, I think it relieves, at least for me, it relieves some pressure of like, hey, like my goal is to share my knowledge. And if they say, like it, then that's just bonus because that wasn't my goal. So I don't know, maybe it's a mental gymnastics, but yeah. Well, it's always mental gymnastics. <laughs> that's true. That's true. But that that one, productive, um, helpful mental gymnastics, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Clarissa. It's been so great talking with you and learning a little bit more about perfectionism. Um, mm-hmm. Are you working in any new interesting research or, or books? Um, yeah, we are, um, I actually was just working on it yesterday, but we're working on an online self-help like program for perfectionism. And so it's like a bunch of different skills for like thoughts, like how to cope with thoughts, how to cope with feelings, how to cope with like self-criticism, how to cope with like, you know, not feeling motivated. And, um, we, so that's one of us. Uh, so we're working on building that program and then we'll be, uh, rolling it out in the next month or so. So I'm cool. excited about What's that. What's it called? Uh, it's called the Good Enough Study. I guess that's the catchy name, but I guess the official name is like an online self-help intervention for clinical perfectionism. Um, well, when that's up and running, share it with me and I would love to share it out too with my listeners. Oh, that would be awesome. Yes, because we definitely want people to sign up. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you for offering. I really appreciate that. But yeah, so that's, that's a project that I'm hoping hoping will be like, I'm really interested to see how people receive it. We've been getting some feedback from beta testers. So yeah. So that's one that I kind of excited about. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for asking. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this chat with Clarissa. I'm happy to have you here and I'll chat with you again next month.